I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. My guest today lives so close to my actual apartment that I can't believe he couldn't just come over, but I'm so thrilled to see him on Zoom. Isaac Butler is the co-author with Dan Coys of This World Only Spins Forward, The Ascent of Angels in America. For Slate, he created and hosted Let Me Your Ears, a podcast about Shakespeare and politics, and currently co-hosts Working, a podcast about the creative process. His work as a director has been seen on stages throughout the U.S., and his new book is called The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act. Welcome, Isaac. It is so wonderful to be on this podcast. Yay. Um, so so the first thing I want to ask you is, it took me, spoiler alert, until page 331 before I came across the example of the kind of method acting that I think of when we say method acting. And that's when you're talking about Robert De Niro. Yes, yeah, second to last chapter. <laughs> yep. Okay, so I, I know that the entire book is about how this happened, but you want to break it down a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So what the public tends to think is the method is, is not what people who actually teach method acting or historians or experts or scholars or whatever think the method is. In fact, their definitions are almost diametrically opposed. Now, this is tricky when you're a descriptivist. I'm a descriptivist. I believe language is alive and definitions change and that's fine. So I try not to be pedantic about it. So I sort of think of it as like, there's a public definition of the method and then there's this like private specialist definition of the method. Um, the one that if you're listening to this, what you probably think the method is, is uh, kind of like what Daniel Day-Lewis does or what they talked about Jeremy Strong doing in that profile That's the in New Yorker. example I was going to use, yep. Even though he says in that article, I am not a method actor, but it's the, um, uh, it's the really ornate research process where you try to kind of live the reality of your character and learn 
the behavioral habits of the character, you know, to the greatest extent possible. And then maybe you'll also rewrite the script to be more like your character. Or you'll come in with ad libs that you've worked out or whatever. And uh, then when you're on set, you kind of refuse to break character and you're very intense, very serious all the time. <laughs> uh, again, I think Daniel Day-Lewis is probably the most famous um, example of this style. It, it is actually really codified as a series of techniques by Robert De Niro in the 1970s, especially, and culminates in the film Raging Bull. Um, so the wild thing is, is that that's not what the method is, uh, uh, um, although they come from the same place in a weird way. So what, what historically the method is, or what people started calling the method in the 1950s, especially once it got a capital M, is um, a process that's about the self, that's about delving into the self and about finding an emotional and psychological bridge between yourself and the character. Um, so it's going deep inside in order to find a way out, as opposed to starting with these kind of external lived reality to find your way in. Um, and that series of techniques and ideas and theories, processes, was really codified by Lee Strasberg, who during his lifetime in the 20th century was the most famous and prominent acting teacher in the United States. Um, some of his very, very famous uh, students include Al Pacino, Ellen Burstyn, Paul Newman, Sidney Poitier. So, you know, it, it's a lot, it's a lot of other people than that. But um, so you can see those are two really, really different ideas. They both, uh, um, and I got really interested in, well, how did this thing become that thing? You know, how does this thing become its opposite? And that was really one of the fun parts of this story to track down and try to kind of uh, work out. Yeah, I, so we, we start in Russia in the 19th century yeah. with Stanislavski, um, who also, it turns out, it seems, I, I'm, I'm trusting you, that he also wasn't good at describing what he believed and was trying yeah. to teach. I mean, one of the wild things about this, which was, you know, kind of, you know, both difficult and thrilling for me is that almost none of the people who codified any of these ideas or developed these techniques or were the gurus behind them were good at explaining them. And they were particularly bad at explaining them in writing. Um, Stanislavski wrote a lot. Uh, he often used interchangeable terms for the same idea or that meant like different micro variations within an idea. His ideas were often overly complicated, you know. Yeah. Isaac, I'm going to stop you because I want to, I'm hoping you can pronounce the word that I have been seeing throughout this book that um, I didn't want to butcher. Oh yeah, Parajivanya, is that the one you're thinking Parajivanya. Parajivanya, uh, funny story. I narrated the audiobook, which is when I learned that I had been in my head mispronouncing every fucking word in the entire thing that came from Russian. Uh, and a friend of mine who had done some of some translation work for me, I was like, uh, the audiobook company sent me a spreadsheet with all the Russian words and I sent it to him and he read them into a you know into his phone and sent them to me as voice memos and That's i learned good. that i had been completely screwing it up in my head the whole time <laughs> so i thought it was perigivany but it's perigivanya perigivanya uh and it means experiencing and that's the thing that really unites those two ideas of what the method is and, and sort of all the different techniques that flow from stanislavski um, is this idea of perigivania is this which is it means experiencing or re-experiencing and it's the it's this moment 
when kind of um, the actor and the character meet and merge and become sort of something that is greater than either one of those. He did not mean that it was the moment that the that an actor literally takes on the psychology of a character. He did not think that was possible and he thought that was insane. I mean, if you think about it, like if you took on the psychology of Hamlet, you wouldn't start talking in iambic pentameter. You'd just be like, <laughs> oh, God, my dad. Yeah, exactly. My uncle murdered my dad. Who do yeah. I trust? You know, so he, um, he, uh, uh, but he had this idea, this idea that, that true acting, truly great acting should create this moment, this, 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 this thing of experiencing. And that was what he was really after. Yeah. And in taking us through the history, um, you know, learning that he worked with Chekhov often, um, thinking about how everything that, that was done in Russia at that time, and, you know, since then, perhaps, has a political charge. There are political consequences to, yeah. to the kinds of uh, decisions that Stanislavski would make and his theater company. Yeah, absolutely. And that's really a fascinating thing about him because he maintained throughout his whole life that he didn't care about politics and he cultivated this image of pure naivete. Uh, one of his nicknames amongst his friends was the big infant because he was just sort of, you know, oh, but you don't survive a couple of czars and the revolution and Lenin and Stalin and thrive within all of those as one of the preeminent artists in your country if you actually have no sense of politics whatsoever. So my feeling personally is that that was a put on. I mean, we don't have any evidence one way or the other, but you know, my own personal feeling is like, just it doesn't make any logical sense. So to me, Stanislavski's idea of like, oh, well, we just pursue great art and we're not really thinking about politics there's just not, it just doesn't seem like there's any way that can be true, particularly when one of your best friends is Maxim Gorky, you know, like it's very strange. Um, but, you know, that is in some ways there's there's large parts of the 20th century, particularly in the United States, where we like to talk about, you know, there's art that's art and politics is politics. And, mm -hmm. you know, um, uh, we don't maybe thinking about the politics of art cheapens art or whatever. I, I feel the exact opposite way. But, you know, the um, actor studio, which is in many ways the, the Vatican of the method, or I yes. guess because it was, it was a lot of Jews, the, the, high, the high temple of the method. <laughs> there you um, go. Uh, uh, you know, especially once HUAC came around, once we hit the second red scare really hard, they started adopting this idea that um, they were an apolitical organization and that the method wasn't political. But it grew out of the group theater, which was among the most political theater companies of the 1930s. You know, it grew out of the theater company that gave us Clifford Odets and that had a very active communist cell in it and, you know, all sorts of other things. So uh, the, the lady doth protest too much uh, sure. on that front. And Isaac, I feel like we see, you show us many examples of the method being a group effort, um, different groups forming, mm -hmm. most often waylaid by strong egos. Yes. <laughs> and, um, or, or like you, you have a quote from a colleague, like so-and-so was terrible to work with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Jessica Tandy calls Marlon Brando a psychopathic bastard at one point. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And, and, I, is this fair? <laughs> 
going from taking a group effort, but having it being ruined by egos is a nice metaphor for <laughs> Russian communism. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. That is not what I thought the second half of that question was going to be at all. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, one of the great tensions that runs throughout this history or through history in general is, you know, that of the group and the individual and um, the Stanislavski's ideas, which he called the system, and then the various adaptations of those ideas, which are not limited to the method, but include the method, are, are always running aground <laughs> and having difficulty with that tension um, because theater is a collaborative group effort and so is film and so is television um and then uh you're creating this new way of acting that's transforming that uh that is hyper individualistic and so you know that's always going to be a weird tension and yes i think it is true that uh that is also a weird tension in 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 communism you know uh uh, uh that that tension between how much of your individual self are you truly willing to give up and then who gets to decide what individual parts of of whom get given up um uh, creates a lot of problems yes <laughs> and, and and part of it was that stanislavski and then his disciples, I guess I would call them, yeah. Um, yeah. have a work ethic that is more Protestant than anything else. I mean, they're, they, the, the way that they ate, slept, breathed theater and their work, and that that was really, you know, the, the ultimate to them and where they drew their lives meanings from, their life's meaning from is uh very moving but i think it's something that is very hard to imagine uh, uh us doing and um you know stanislavski for a lot of his life was running this theater company he was co-running this theater company he was directing plays in it he was acting in it his wife was in it um and he was also running an incredibly successful um you know, his family's industrial, he was also a wealthy businessman right. industrialist at the same time. So you sort of like, when did he sleep? Like what, what hours of the day was he sleeping? You know, the, the, the amount that they just sort of gave themselves up to it and they believed they were serving this thing that was greater and higher than themselves. You know, I, I find that deeply moving. Um, uh, it's not necessarily something I've been capable of doing myself. Uh, but I do find it, I do find it moving, even as it caused all sorts of problems, particularly within the group theater. Yeah. And there, there is something about if, if theater is your life, if acting is your life, then, then there are no boundaries. And that yeah. seems work-life balance really doesn't seem to exist. Yeah. And there's two, there's a few places throughout the story where that's really true. One, one of them is in the first studio, which is the organization that Stanislavski forms to kind of test and teach the theories of the system because his colleagues at the Moscow Art Theater are getting kind of annoyed at how he's bending all of his rehearsal processes into laboratory. So he creates a kind of pure laboratory. And, you know, the members of the first studio were all sleeping together. They, uh, you know, worked, they were working at the Moscow Art Theater. And then at night they would go to the first studio during the, um, 
the revolution. They moved into the building to protect it and opened a hospital kind of in it that would serve um, wounded on either side of the conflict. It was like a, it was like a safe space. They hired a nurse, you know, um, so but they all had affairs with you. I mean, that, that was a, the, the ferment was creative and personal and professional and sexual and all sorts of other things. And the same was absolutely true of the group. The group actually, the group theater in the United States, which is the theater company that Clifford Odets, Lee Strasberg, Harold Clerman, Stella Adler, John Garfield, you know, many of the mo most important acting teachers of the United States come out of this company. They were explicitly opposed to those kinds of boundaries. You know, they really felt that development as an individual and development as an artist were the same, that, you know, you needed to work on your personal problems to be able to be a great artist. They um, took these summer retreats where they lived and worked and slept together, you know, um, they were, they were drinking. Peter it was camps. like, yeah, it was like, it was that's like what, summer camp. That's what French they were Woods 30. turned out to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did you go to French Woods? No, I wanted to. So bad. Oh, see, I went to a camp, I went to a summer camp called Bucks Rock and Bucks Rock was a lot, a lot, a lot like that. <laughs> um, except these people were 30, right. And they were all drinking all the time. Um, and, you know, you read the accounts of the group and their lack of boundaries with each other is startling. I mean, among other things, there was a level of interpersonal conflict that they were comfortable with that is unimaginable to me today. Yeah. I mean, they would just like scream at each other for 10 years, basically. They were just, <laughs> yeah, you know, and yet they made all this brilliant art. I don't think it was particular. like, I don't want to do that, but um, it's, it's amazing to read about them doing that. It is amazing to read about. And, and another side of that coin that, that is amazing to read about is how, harsh and abusive uh directors were yeah um and and um i understand the idea that especially as an actor you need to have a very thick skin and yet yeah i mean different directors do take different tactics that that are that are discussed a bit in the book but you know this the idea we have of the kind of you know, director impresario who's like brutally, either brutally taking his actors apart or um, cannily manipulating them and maybe sleeping with them. I mean, that has roots in reality. That stereotype comes from somewhere. And some of the places it comes from are people who are characters in the book. Um, on the gentle manipulation and occasionally sleeping with you front, um, Aaliyah Kazan, uh, who also got his start in the group theater, he was just exceptionally good at learning everything about you um, in either a friendly or actually sexual seduction because he did sleep with people he worked with. And then you wouldn't even realize it, but there's directing, he was using it. He was using everything he knew about you to kind of manipulate you into this kind of emotional, into the correct emotional place. Then he would do it very gently. Carl Malden talks about this in his memoir that you just sort of didn't even realize it was happening. Um, you know, Malden thinks, hey, this is great. Lots of people are like, hey, this is great. It's amazing how he was able to do this and nurture me at the same time. But you know, you you exaggerate that just a little bit. You have a puppet master, right? And um, Lee Strasberg uh, did not brook disagreement <laughs> very well at all and had a real reputation for really um, lighting into people and yelling at them and making them do things again and again. And Stanislavski, who is much more widely beloved as a person than Strasberg, uh, could get into that too. To me, what's at the heart of it is like, if you believe 
that it's a reasonable standard that someone give their all at all times. You know, that the highest level of excellence at the highest level of excellence is a reasonable standard to hold for yourself and your peers. Cause it's worth saying that Stanislavski drove no one as hard as he drove himself. Um, that's going to lead to some really crazy behavior, particularly if there aren't, you know, workplace boundaries in an HR department and, and things like that. And one of the ongoing things that comes up again and again in the book is um, the glories that that makes possible and the destruction that that causes. And it's sometimes the same person is doing both of those things um, because they're holding themselves or other people to those kinds of unattainable standards. Yeah. And I, I, I really appreciate how throughout the book, in the introduction of the book, you say that you're going to treat the method like a biography subject. Yes. And I can see it mostly in that you, you really stay out of the debate. You, you pre present many sides. <laughs> right. How, how do you do that? Tell me about that. Um. Well, thank you so much for saying that because, you know, I want very early on, I had a conversation with my editor where I was like, I don't want to use the first person pronoun outside of the introduction and the afterward. Uh, I just, I just don't, I just don't think that's, you know, um, I don't, I want to be present in structure and style, you know, like it's going to feel like I wrote it and no one else wrote it. And I'm confident that's true without me having to put myself in it. That's no, um, I'm not dinging books where the author, you know, steps into it. I love those books. I'm just saying it, it was an important rule for me. And it was just like the biography idea was an important sort of rule. Um, I experienced the tyranny of the blank page or writer's block or whatever we call it. A lot of times it's choice paralysis, that there's actually too many things to do and they all sort of clog each other up. And so having some quick rules or some quick conceptual ideas, I think really helps you just kind of get going. And then you can always throw them out if they don't work these happened to work well. So I kept with them. Um, so yeah, I was very interested in, I knew I was going to get into a lot of what for experts in the field are very, very high stakes debates, you know, and people tend to form an allegiance to particularly either Strasberg or Stella Adler or Sanford Meisner, the, the three great acting teachers of the 20th century, um, Stella and Sandy Meisner were friends and they hated Lee Strasberg and there's like lots of rivalries between them, whatever. Um, and I just decided that I found those debates more fascinating than my opinions about them in some weird way. Um, like I just find the debate itself really dramatically and narratively interesting and far more interesting than my own opinions about it, which change all the time anyway. So, you know, as thinking about those debates, A, just, yeah, like I said, I found that more interesting. But the other thing is like, um, there was nothing that I could say that wasn't said in the individual, in the moment that those arguments were being hap were, were, were happening. So I was also trying to avoid a kind of presentist bias and to instead talk about what is actually happening. And if there is a moment where I wanna comment from today, I'm gonna to highlight it. I'm gonna say speaking from the vantage point of today, which mm -hmm. I do a couple times in the book, or you know, speaking about what we know now, because not every, they, there are things we know now that they didn't know then, but to try to really expose you as the reader to what it was like to be alive in that moment. 
and to if the method is a living thing, what it was like to be at that moment in the method's life. So, so that's sort of how I tried to conceptually approach it. And I'm very gratified to hear that it was successful. Yeah. Um, and, and so if this is a biography and we go through the method's life cycle, say, yeah. um, talk to me a little bit about beyond the grave <laughs> because you 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 talk a lot about um going from theater to film and what those challenges are and yeah. um how the creative process differs i'm wondering what you think about tv now and if you see yeah, I mean, the, the, the TV process is much more similar to the film process than either is to theater, um, except that you're um, working as a character for a much longer period of time than you are in either. I mean, unless you remain in a Broadway show for two or three years, which very mm -hmm. few people do now, you're not spending that much time with a character. And particularly because we're in the age of serialization in, in both comedy and drama. Um, that character is growing and evolving uh, in ways that really, I mean, theater just doesn't have that, or film don't have the time to really do that kind of gradual evolution of character. Um, there are absolutely people who have studied the method or studied with the Stella Adler technique, or especially Sanford Meisner technique is very popular in Hollywood. There are certainly those people who are, who are out there uh, on TV sets, you know, you know, doing work. And I do think that in television, um, for the most part, we want the same thing from our actors that we do from other stuff, which is that we, we want to feel like we're watching a real human being and that the behavior makes some kind of sense and that it's stylistically connected to what other people are doing. And, you know, the character has things that they want that they're trying to do and, you know, all, all, all that same stuff. The big thing that's changed that I, I, I think about a lot is that um, for most of the history of acting, uh, the, the battle is to have what you're doing be actually like legible to the audience because of the size of spaces and the lighting in them and, you know, all sorts of stuff like that. Sound. Uh, sound. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, so for example, one of the big arguments against method acting in the fifties was that the actors were so internalized that they couldn't be heard. Right. That's a very famous complaint from that period. Um, that's not a problem anymore. We have amazing microphones. We have amazing cameras, you know, you can watch, um, a TV show on like a smart toaster, if you wanted to, you know, um, um, the big problem that both, uh, writing and acting face now is keeping your attention uh, is, is holding onto the viewer's attention. That's the crisis now. And that is, I think, having a transformative effect on acting and writing as it drives, um, more towards very clear stakes and very clear themes and very clear acting beats. You know, we're, we're starting to move away from, you know, if you think about the movies of the seventies, the mysteriousness of the human being, we're moving away from that back into a realm where we know who these people are. We know what they want, what they're doing is very clear. It's very transparent. And um, I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily. I just want to hold out a place for, the mystery of the human condition, you know? Um, and it's very hard to do that and have people keep paying attention. And so that's the thing I worry about in the future. Yeah, even when you discuss um, art films, when they became very popular, 
Um, th those, of course, are can be any frame of um, realism or experimentalism. Or, yeah. um, and and I was thinking about that how it's it's really a shame that um, film does not seem to have quite as much going on. Yeah, I mean, there's some of it does. I mean, there's some stuff out there. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Um, uh, but but you know, starting. In the, so the, the new Hollywood moment in the 70s, which is where in a weird way, it's like the method and French new wave had a baby. And that's, you know, <laughs> the, the new Hollywood moment, which is, uh, I think, for a lot of people, one of their favorite periods of American film history. Yeah. Um, and I love those movies. And then I actually there's lots of stuff in the 80s that I'll defend and that I'll champion. I mean, what's interesting about the 80s is this it, it kicks off this era of incredible stylistic diversity, both in terms of acting performance and, and in film. And, you know, like I'm I'm glad that we have a kind of di a big diversity and a lack of dogmatism in our approaches to screen performance right now. You know, I'm glad that we can recognize that Nicolas Cage is a brilliant actor uh and that ellen burston is a brilliant actor even mm -hmm. though they're very different actors you know um i i think that's great i just want within that diversity to maintain a place for the kind of work that you and i are talking about the kind of work where subtext is really important the kind of work where um the character's problems can't be easily explained necessarily because modernity is the actual problem um you know for all the i actually like this movie you know it was weirdly controversial but for for all the complications or shortcomings of nomadland for existence for mm. for example one of the things i liked about it is that like her problem is not you can't sum up her problem in like a sentence really right. like she, there's a fundamental brokenness that has to do with the world and politics and class but it also has to do with grief and all these other things and a lot of what you're realizing over the course of that movie is this that that her problem can't really be solved you know the problems of it can't be solved because they're our world they're the human condition and i just want to make sure that we have space for for those kinds of of movies and tv shows still and i love how you brought it all back to in the intro you have um an example with francis mcdormand so yeah yeah i mean you know francis mcdormand is not technically a method actor although i think that she she exists in that lineage in specific ways like she studied an adaptation of Stanislavski's techniques from a guy named earl gister at yale and she lives in new york not la and you know there's the norms that she obeys as an actor the ones that are started by the method and so i really wanted to start with her as an example of how um since she's such a consensus great actor to be like the reason why we think she's a great actor is actually the stuff that happened in the middle of the 20th century and if you took those performances and you know a hundred years back people wouldn't necessarily feel the same way about them that we do amazing isaac this has been so uh informative and delightful oh, thank you thank um, you this is such a pleasure tell me about some books you'd like to recommend Oh yeah, well, I just finished one that I really loved, which was, uh, um, speaking of biographies, Amanda Vale uh, uh, wrote this wonderful biography of Jerome Robbins, the choreographer mm. and theater director called Somewhere, uh, The Life of Jerome Robbins. And um, it's real good. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's not one of those biographies that has a clear thesis about its subject, which I think, um, could sometimes, if you don't have a clear thesis of the subject, sort of lead to a kind of 
well, then this happened and then this happened and then this mm-hmm. happened. But the truth of the matter is, is that she's done a really good job of organizing the material. And she she's really good at like really vividly describing his ballet work, which is hard to do in sure. a way that you're like, understand why it's important. Um, uh, and I just left with a much deeper understanding of him and his era and dance, which is something I don't know a lot about. I mean, the reason why it doesn't have that sort of firm thesis is because Jerome Robbins, you know, the source of his genius in some ways and the source of great pain for him was that he was a deeply fragmented person and he never figured out how to kind of resolve those sides of himself. And he was constantly at war with those sides of himself to try to figure out who he was. And um, she portrays that drama in a really uh, uh, compelling and detailed way. And she's really done her research work. I think it took like a decade to write. And it's just very, very, very impressive. Um, uh, And so if you care at all about 20th century performing arts, I, I really recommend it. Love it. Thank you so much, Isaac. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.